0: Hello, hello, and hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode, if not now, when I am so excited to invite my friend, Kevin Parakatu, to join me in today's show. Kevin, he is a partner at Plug & Play Ventures, where he leads the firm's commerce, media, and consumer investment. In his 5 years on investing at PMP, Kevin has led seed and early stage investment in over 30 more companies. He also sat at innovation advisory board at National Retail Federation. Prior to PMP, Kevin was an investment analyst at Central Petal, Capital, and a co-founder of Pure Play Consumer and Mapillo Businesses. With that, my friend, I am so beyond excited. Please join me to welcome Kevin to the show. So Kevin, we are so excited to have you join us today. What an honor. So tell us, where is all the magic beginning for you, Kevin?
1: Yeah, I mean, first off, uh, you know, thank you, Wen, uh, for having me on the podcast. Um, no, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, The magic started uh, for me in New York. I'm originally from New York. Uh, My parents are from South India. They emigrated here in the late 80s. uh, And then I was born and then, uh, you know, kind of went from New York to California and then moved to Texas about two years ago.
0: Wow. um, Exciting journey. How does that... Feel like growing up in an immigrant family in a fancy city like New York.
1: Yeah, so we grew up outside in New York City, uh. Uh, in a town called Rockland County. Okay. Um, pretty kind of sleepy town, like a local suburb. Wouldn't you know? Uh, and for me, I was one of the few Indian kids in class. Our, my class has about maybe 250 kids. Um, Asians in general is probably 10 or so kids, uh, and then you know the rest of the class was uh, was mainly Caucasian and others. Um, so we were always a minority um, in that. My parents, when they first moved to New York, they moved to the South Bronx. Um, and, and New Yorkers who who are listening know the South Bronx is notoriously rough. Um, and when they had children, they decided to kind of go to a safe place. Um, so that's where, where I grew up. Mm. Um, so... You know, I think early on in life, it was kind of an identity, like, who am I? What do I mean? Like, am I?
0: What did you find out?
1: <laughs> it's still an ongoing journey, I think, mm-hmm. um, as one does. But for me, at that early time, it was, at least in the beginning, it was all about trying to fit in. Um, you know, try to be like everyone else. Um, you know, I had an accent. I, You know, we mentioned before, English was not my first language. Um, I can
0: never tell, by Yeah.
1: Um, so I did ESL, English as a second language, for... For eight years, um, uh, and uh, just kind of going through that process and trying to find yourself throughout that. Like first, it was try to become like everybody else, um, and you know, kind of have the same interests as everyone else. Kind of shun away from your own culture, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there was kind of a moment, I think, in high school where you just kind of realized that, you know, your background, the things that you grow up with, is the beauty that you have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And that you trying to become like everyone else is a disservice to almost your heritage and what makes you shine. Um, So
0: beautiful.
1: So that was, I think, a a profound learning early in life to lean in um, to the culture, to your own kind of quirks, if you will, and uh, become the person that you are. And then people will embrace you because you're different. And the difference in you is what makes you unique and exciting to talk to.
0: That's so beautiful. That's one of the reasons I love Austin, Texas, keep Austin weird. <laughs> and the way that I think about it is, is I mean, I'm weird. You are weird. She's <laughs> weird. He's, we all weird in our own unique ways. And what you said is so touching that, yeah, it's, especially the more we can lean into who we are, that, that weirdness, that uniqueness. And that's how we are here shining our light, share our gift. I love it. So, with that, Kevin, what happened next? How do you think about the career choice as you going to college?
1: Yeah, um, I think when you meet a lot of venture capitalists, they're kind of shining stars from day one, um, or it seems like it when I whenever I get to meet them, um, they went to the top institutions and then went or to, went to the top banks, etc. Uh, my story is a bit different. Um, so, uh, my parents, uh, my dad works in the New York City subway, mm. um, uh, you know, in kind of one of the warehouses. My mom's a, a, a nurse, and growing up, you know, my biggest aspiration. Um, was maybe to run a restaurant mm-hmm. or, or stuff like that. I'm um, kind of more um, small business focused um, and therefore, you know, throughout high school to kind of pay the bills and so forth, um, I would, I just cleaned tables, I waited tables, etc. cetera. Um, and there was a moment in, in high school um, where I was working at a French restaurant um, and the owner of the restaurant sat me down and he said kind of, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, oh, I mean, like maybe, maybe become like a restaurant manager or, you know, um, run a laundromat or something like that, something kind of local. And he's like, I think that you have far more to achieve than that. Um, and then not that there's anything kind of wrong with that. It's just that I think that you have potential in other aspects. Um, how much do you care about kind of the SAT and stuff and other kind of standardized exams? And at that point, it was, you know, not at all. Um, uh, and so what he would do is he would, uh, in between kind of stacking dishes and and getting customer placed, and going back to the kitchen, in the kitchen, he would ask me SAT questions.
0: Um, wow. Wow. He care if you don't mind us directly. (laughs) That's so incredible.
1: Um, and I, I actually don't know why he developed an affinity towards me, um, it was just, he was the owner. He was doing very well for himself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think he saw some potential in me early That's on.
0: incredible that uh, you already have such a mentor in such an early age.
1: Yeah. So, he alone, I think, made a seismic shift in life. Yeah. Uh, because I started caring about, you know, school and yeah. all of that. Um,
0: so, you need to ask your SAT question while well, you're like cleaning dishes. Exactly. Like, yeah. wiping tables.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like. All right,
0: what is three Plus thirty five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More complex now, of course.
1: Yeah, the one that I remember was um uh there's a SAT word called Bruhaha, um, which which is like uh similar to chaos and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And that was like one of the classic ones. You're like, What is Bruhaha? and I'd be like, This restaurant. <laughs> um so that really started it. Luckily I did, you know, I did good enough on the SATs and got better at school. Um and then ended up getting a full ride into college. Um
0: but I wonder, just through his inaction with you, what was the one moment that changed in your mind about, about not caring at all, but now you start thinking academically?
1: I think he just like he he made me kind of open up my eyes to what my life could have been. So at that time i was I would ride my bike to the bus stop, take the bus stop to work, uh, work until two a m, then you know go home, and then uh, you know if, if it was a school week, then start school at six a m and stuff like that. Oh. Um, and he, and you know, while my end goal was, you know, whatever it may be, maybe to become a kind of local small business owner, the path to get there is backbreaking quite literally. Um, and I think he made me realize that for him becoming a restaurant owner, um, was kind of an ends to a means that he was a kind of a French immigrant, mm-hmm. um, French and, and Haitian immigrant, um, that came without a degree. And, and therefore, he had to work his way up through a restaurant to ultimately mm. own his French restaurant. But me as a child, you know, of immigrants have just a natural opportunity of growing up in the States. Um, and before you kind of explore some of these things, you should see what your potential is um, before kind of going within the lens of what you know.
0: So beautiful. So, also, he sees a younger version of himself in you, the one with more possibility and opportunity, given where you are at that moment in your life.
1: I think so. Um, and, and it was profound. So, mm-hmm. you know, he helped me kind of, um, and not just him, right? I mean, there's, you know, uh, your parents, your, your I have an older brother, uh, you know, your whole community kind of mm. shows you the potentials that sometimes you don't see in yourself. Mm. Um, Incredible. Uh, so I was able to go to go to school for free, which was incredible at the time. Um, my family, you know, didn't have crazy wealth or anything like that. Um, but in school, I think I went to school in in New York city at a school called Baruch college city university of New York. Um, and everyone there wanted to become an investment banker. Um, that was the dream. That was the, you know, the Willy Wonka pass, if you will. Uh um,
0: right in New York, probably, yeah. like two broth on Wall Street.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, you'd wear a suit to class. Uh, but that's aggressive. Yeah.
0: Freshman? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, because kids always had internships or you yeah. know, some of the school clubs even, Got like it. the Wall Street clubs would require you to wear a suit. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times you'd end up wearing it. So, you know, just like everyone else, um, I was like, oh, I guess I want to be an investment banker too. Um, so um, what I did kind of, during those three years, was try to pack my resume to what I thought, kind of what I, you know, learned and unlearned from high school. It was I, like I did what everyone else, you know, thought uh, was best, uh, but it wasn't necessarily best for me. Um, and I think the the point was that um, I worked towards that and ended up getting what's called a super day, um, which is like the last round of interviews at every major investment bank. Um, and uh, during one week, I had six or yeah, I believe six or so super days. Um, and then the following week is when you get, you know, if you got into anything. And then it was six kind of rejections back to back at all, at all kind of the name brands that you and I are aware of. Um,
0: How was that experience? So that shaving was. Shaving you that yeah. moment.
1: Yes, yeah, so was uh that was definitely a low point. Um, probably one of the lowest points, right? Because you kind of work your way up to something. I understand. And then. Um, a third party, whatever it may be, kind of you know rejects you, and rejection hurts, whatever form it may be. Um, so it came through that process, but I think you know, I mean, it's almost a cliche, but sometimes your lows are meant there so that you can have so you can rise up from that. Um, and what came out of that was um, you know two friends and I, sheerly with kind of zero options in place, um, uh, decide to start a company. Um, so what we did was we focused on custom clothing. We allowed students to design their own clothing, potentially use their college logos, um, uh, if we had a royalty agreement, um, with the respective university and it was entirely online and it was, you know, student friendly, et cetera. We were competing with, um, custom Inc and a few others that were in the space, uh, and we built a great business. Um, we didn't have to touch inventory at all. Um, essentially what we did was we allowed students to design their own clothing and then we'd place out an order mm. to a bunch of screen printers and digital, you know, digital printers and then whoever got the order first would take it and then run with it. And then they would actually do the delivery. Um, and brilliant
0: so business model. Almost like dropshipping, but even yeah. more. Customized. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and basically the, the moment was that there are, you know, there was within New York State, there were thousands of screen printers, small businesses that are in strip malls, et cetera that are not digital native at all. Mm -hmm. So we became the digital native bridge Mm. between the online consumer and their brick and mortar front.
0: So Uh, you shifting from a moment, realize, wow, like investment banker maybe not going to work out. You shift immediately to entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah. So like, and what happened was during those interviews, people would, I would just talk about tech. I would just talk about technology and the latest and greatest and what I'm seeing in the market. Yeah. Um, And almost consistently, you know, uh, the last stage of interviews would be are you just doing this to eventually go into VC uh, or, or technology in general? And I'm like, no, absolutely not. I, I love you know term sheets and M and A and all the other things that are involved in that field. Um, uh, and no one believed me. I don't think I I believe me. Um, and uh, did you know what
0: you wanted at the time? I was at an interview.
1: I think my I think I didn't have that level of introspection that I you know been able to build over the years. It was. Um, you know just thinking that this is what everyone else is doing and this is the key to success yeah. and therefore if I want to do something later in the fields that I like you know I gotta I gotta kind of put in my time understood Um, and at that time in the New York VC startup ecosystem was incredibly friendly and that's where I'd spend my my you know after hours Um, and they still are I mean you would just go to New York meetups you'd meet kind of entrepreneurs that were building unicorns, but they were incredibly friendly and willing to give up their time. Um,
0: so while you dress up those fancies, you still get us all the amazing meetings and <laughs> interviews. You know, and you also go to Choke coffee shop or meet us and meeting with founders and see what they're building. And yeah. what was a moment that you, in your mind thinking, you know what, I'm gonna do this. Like, this is actually what excites me.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it was myself and then two co-founders at the time. Um, we were just kind of with zero options and talking about how expensive it is to get a hoodie in the yeah. local school store. Um, a hoodie at the at the college bookstore yeah. was $80 or $100. Totally. Um, and it didn't make any sense if you were a college student um, uh, and trying to buy something like that. Um, and we thought there must have been a better way. And what we found was that you know that hoodie um, cost a dollar to make. Um, Not a dollar to make hoodie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you order at the quantity that a school does, um, you know, several, you know, in order in bulk, it's about a thousand, it's about a dollar or so for the product. Oh, my God. Um, And then what you're paying, let's say, if it costs $80, the $79 is the school school logo, um, you know, the operational costs, all the 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 things, et cetera, right? And you are taking on the costs that are fixed. Yeah. Yeah. so in that time it was let's develop something entirely online. That's so exciting. Um, it's not like we have anything to do this summer anyway.
0: <laughs> oh, that's the over the summer break.
1: Yeah, so we, we developed that over the kind of um, over the next two years or so Wow. Um, and we built the business um, yeah. and it ran on its own. You know, like students would order. Mm -hmm. um, We wouldn't really have to touch anything. And then it would go out and screen printers and get delivered to them. Um, All we had to do was just get on different organizations and stuff.
0: To share, right?
1: Yeah, to share the idea. Um, And the business did well. So I think that was my first realize and kind of confidence in myself and uh, and building and working with others um, on a shared vision. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, what essentially happened next was that um, a lot of VCs were kind of interested and I developed relationships over the years. Um and I ended up joining one of the venture capital firms. Um because kind of the trajectory that we were going was more small business. Um uh, essentially we were doing, you know, around seven or eight figures top line. Um and then we were doing about thirty to forty percent net margins. Mm-hmm. Um put it so, nice. Yeah. So we, and we didn't have any staff and it was just us three. And yeah. you know, like it could have been a great, you know, passive income, yeah, if you will.
0: Yeah.
1: Um but you know you're 22 and you wanna you wanna take on different challenges and so forth. Um, so I ended up selling my equity back to the founders, okay. and they and they ended up running the business and then eventually kind of doing their own thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for me, it was trying this whole VC thing um, that was always on my brain and something that I was incredibly interested by.
0: That so that was the, your path after graduation.
1: Yeah. Um, so I went to a firm in Connecticut. Um, it was a small fund, a 150 million dollar fund called Centripetal Capital, um, and kind of similar to in in high school where you know, the restaurant owner found you know found interest in me. Um, the same thing there. It was this managing partner, Steve Krust, um, as well as his partner uh, Jeff Broadleaf. Um, and the reason I met Jeff was because I would I would sneak into the Harvard Club, which is um, Harvard University's like yeah. uh, club in New York City. Um, just to meet people because, you know, uh, I wanted to meet, like, really accomplished alumni. Mm-hmm. And Jeff was one of those people that actually had gone to Harvard, and I just met him by uh, by being in the place. Um, so met Jeff, met Steve, and they kind of guided me into the operational and kind of uh, valuation frameworks that would fuel the venture capital career that I have today. Was uh, it
0: everything you wanted? It or was it different than what you thought it,
1: it was? It was uh incredibly exciting so that specific job was focused a lot on kind of distressed venture companies um so you know we always talk about kind of unicorns and so forth and the company's doing well right um but there's kind of this whole other side of the coin Mm -hmm. of venture capital tell us more um which is that uh you know a lot of companies will raise on sky high yeah valuations now yeah yeah exactly um and then not be able to reach their metrics So, what happened after that? So, what happens is what's called generally a recap, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, a recapitalization, um, whereby let's say a company, you know, let's say hypothetically a company raised 20 million at a 60 million uh, post. Mm -hmm. Um, And their metrics, let's say, uh, now are a million dollars top line. If in, you know, they're probably not worth more than 20 million, um, depending on what they do, um, but they're valued at 60 million.
0: Oh my god, um, that's a huge gap. Right? How was that? Do I hear it correctly? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So what happens is basically different investors come in um, and they assign a valuation to the company, and then the existing investors get diluted down to mm. you know sometimes single digit percentages. Um, wow. Uh, and it can be; it's very risky for the new investor to come in and do that um, because it could just not be a good company. Yeah. Um, it could have been a company. And we're seeing that a lot now in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing, kind of, you know, seven years ago, um, where you know you come in, and then it could just be that the executive team didn't really have they raised before there was product market fit, mm-hmm. um, or they kind of had an amazing pedigree before that, and therefore it was kind of blind money going in. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever, so that's it a bad may be. thing,
0: right? You don't want to raise too much money or too yeah. early before you need it.
1: I think that was a huge learning that I've had over the years is that fundraising events um, are not necessarily, uh, you know, should not be taken dramatically. Like, oh, wow, look at this company and its valuation. Look how much they raised. Mm. Um, uh, what ends up happening is that it it allows business to continue and grow, uh, but it's not the end. Right. Mm. Um, And I think early on in my career, I'd get super excited when, let's say, a portfolio company would raise a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, that allows business to continue. Um, And while there should be some celebration, it's not, look at me, I should be kind of the the front page of every news now. Um, Because, you know, like I said, there's there's oftentimes another side to the coin um, where if, if growth metrics are not met, then oftentimes those founders have to reevaluate what they do in the company, as well as what the company is worth. Mm
0: -hmm. I think it's so helpful that you speak that insight because you are 100% right. Now there are so much bubbles or shining stars when it comes, oh my God, someone raised XYZ and it's so exciting on the tech crunch, all the amazing things. And and oftentimes we we only see the the shining spark. We don't see the truth within that. And what you just share is truly incredible or this is... This is what reality is. Yes, you raise X, Y, Z, but this is maybe the right word you say is this is not the means to the end. Do I say that correctly? This is it end, end like this is yeah. a path to get to the next growth? Right. This is not the end goal. You don't just like you don't just get done like the business still had to keep going. You had to still return the ROI for investors.
1: Exactly, um, and yeah, I think you've had previous uh, guests on the show talk about you know, scaling a company from zero to 50 people mm-hmm. and scaling a company, let's say 50 to 100, mm-hmm. 100 to 500 is different. 100%. Um, so while the founder may have amazing potential in that initial stage, sometimes they may not be the right person for the next stage. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: or the final stage of whatever it may be.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's, that's challenging. Um,
0: so you look at all this distressed company while well, in part of that venture capital yeah. role.
1: So that, yeah, that was an amazing... Uh, initial lens into VC. Was
0: it a little bit scary? Because I imagine you probably have this rainbow and sunshine view about the VC world when you first jump in. And now you look at all the, oh, shoot. Like, those are all the things that could go around and you're looking at And Was that discouraging?
1: It, I think it allowed me to have a balanced view.
2: Mm. Um,
1: Because Venture capital as a career is something that, you know, a lot of people want to go into. Yeah. Why uh, is that, you think? Um, I think it's because they watch, you know, Shark Tank and it looks incredibly fun. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you get to evaluate companies and you get to work. And all of that's true. You get to work with amazing entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and people who are incredibly brilliant in the top of their fields. Um, but a lot of times we lean into kind of the hype cycle, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, and um, our own emotions get yeah. better of us. It, it's more of, especially at the early stage, it's much more of your belief of where you think you can take that company than necessarily any hard metrics. Yeah, you use comps to kind of benchmark They're yourself. The best. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, it's an art piece with just a pencil before it's been written. Um, uh, you know, you're waiting for it to see what what <laughs> what the masterpiece will look like.
0: Yes. I yes. Yes.
1: Um, so. Um going in with that lens really allowed me to mm-hmm. um, see the other side of the coin first mm-hmm. and then develop a more balanced perspective mm-hmm. um, about outcomes, if you will, um,
0: yeah.
1: and how they can happen.
0: So what, what happened next?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that role in specific allowed me to be much more of an operator. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, what happened a lot of times is we'd go in and... Um, you know, we'd become the lead investor and we'd recap the company, et cetera. Um, and uh, each one of us, including myself as, as an analyst, um, we would take on an operator role in the portfolio company. We would do like one or two investments per year. Um, so at one point I was, you know, head of HR for a, a pet retail company that we had invested in. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> and I had no experience in HR and so forth, but it was about building kind of the foundation um, and just learning from the operators that I reported into. Um, so that was great. That was a great level of experience at a, at a higher scale than I was used to. Um, and what happened next was one of the partners at the firm ended up starting, um, Simon property groups, venture fund, mm-hmm. so Simon property group, big mall operator. Um, they own the domain here in Austin, um, for example, um, at, and several other properties. Um, they started a hundred million dollar venture fund. One of the partners that I worked with, um, joined that and, and managed that. Um, and then he ended up starting a partnership with plug and play.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so when I told him that I really want to get into the classic venture capital, I want to be in Silicon Valley, all of that, he's like, you need to go join this firm that's 50 people right now and I think they're going to you know blow up, like meaning grow over time. Uh, and you can you can get an early seat in that. Um, so I did. I
0: tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, um, we were early. Um, so this was, you know, uh, six years ago. Um, I joined Plug and Play in kind of the missed maybe the initial fifty or so employees. Um, for context, we're about, you know, it's north of six hundred now. Oh my god, um, so big. Yeah. Uh, so for
0: our uh, listener are not familiar with Plug and Play, give us a bit more context and then dive into your role.
1: Yeah, sure. So so Plug and Play is kind of two major things. So one is a global venture capital firm. Um, We invest anywhere from 50k up to two million um, into, you know, on average about 200 or so startups per year. Um, Wow, that's a
0: huge scale.
1: Yeah, all over the world, we have we have about 120 investors on the team um, uh, that you know are spread over 17 different verticals, Um, and the performance of those investments have ultimately netted about 32 unicorn valuation companies, a billion dollar plus valuation companies. Historic players like Dropbox and PayPal, um, newer players like Honey, Rappi, IronRide was an autonomous trucking company, Mm -hmm. and several others. Um, So that's one side of our business. Mm -hmm. The other side of our business is that we are the world's largest corporate innovation platform. Mm. Um, Essentially, what we've done is we've created a marketplace, a managed marketplace, whereby large Fortune 1000 companies sit on one end. And that is, I think, you know, roughly 580 or so corporations now. Okay. Um, and then on the other side, it's entrepreneurs of all different, you know, sizes. Uh, it could be a seed stage company, it could be a Series D, Series E company. And what we're essentially doing is creating a platform whereby these different, uh, where these entrepreneurs and these corporations and all the other stakeholders that are involved in the innovation journey can connect and work with one another. Um,
0: that's, that's so cool. But how does that possible? Like, How?
1: Yeah. So what we do is we, we essentially run uh, you know, cohorts of startups. Um, your average cohort is anywhere from 10 to 20 companies. Mm-hmm. And like I said, across 17 different verticals. Yeah. Um, and then you, you, know, you multiply that by the number of locations. Um, and then on every given year, we're you know, about 2,500 or so companies are going through our programs. Um, and like I said, different sizes, we yeah. don't ask for any equity, we don't charge them any fee.
0: Oh, this is not the investment, this is on other side of it. Exactly. This is completely for free?
1: Yeah, so for the for the entrepreneur, it's completely for free. Corporations sponsor the program, Uh-oh. and the way that we do it is many to many. So for example, in our insure tech practice, we work with over 50 insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Um, they all have a common goal. They want to uh, find amazing startups mm. and technology companies that can help solve some of their key challenges. Wow. Um,
0: so, so basically, those corporates come together and say, we have found the next innovative, innovation that come to our field to help us solving the most hardest question. And then they sponsor. And you guys run a cohort. That's brilliant. How yeah. long is the cohort? Is that three, one, three weeks, three months?
1: Yeah, so it's three months. Okay. The the way that we think about That's where brilliant. where plug-and-play sits yeah. um, is there are some amazing accelerators out there and incubators. Yeah. Um, y Combinator, Techstars here yeah. in Texas, et cetera. Um, and... Uh, what they do really well is taking a company from zero to one, mm-hmm. um, is building your founding team, getting your initial product out there, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what we want to do is the, all the numbers after one, uh, becoming a global scaling partner.
0: Oh, so you uh, don't take like early, early entrepreneur. You take entrepreneur who already maybe find on the product market fit, maybe already have some traction or sort now helping them to fund one, one, two.
1: Yeah, so we like to invest at the earliest stages, mm-hmm. um, help coach the entrepreneur, and uh, mm-hmm. to get ready to mm-hmm. be enterprise ready. Yeah, uh, and then have them involved in our different cohorts so they can scale with large companies.
0: Got it. But those two uh, side are not necessarily the same, right? Entrepreneur can join you, but without being invested by
1: exactly. you. Guys. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. So, like, I mean, um, so that that allows the platforms to attract the best. Startups, yeah, and they may not be investment targets for us, yeah, uh, but we can help grow their business. That's incredible.
0: Uh, but how do they able to scale? I mean, thir- uh, that's a lot of entrepreneurs <laughs> at all time, given different location, different vertical. That's a lot of things happening at any given day.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, plug and play as an institution, we're, we're doing about four hundred events per year. Oh my goodness. Um, all over the world, yeah, uh, in all different geographies. It's and incredible, so yeah. Um, I mean, we do it because one, I think it's amazing people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, about 600 people that focus on operations, sales, et cetera. Wow. Um, and then about 100 or so, like I said, that are investors that mm-hmm. are finding the companies. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you sit? Uh, I sit on both ends. Um, I started on the investor side. Uh, But now I'm, you know, helping build our our location here in Texas and so forth. So exciting.
0: Uh, Yeah. And when do we expect a location to be ready? And any announcement you want to share with our uh, listeners?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we're in the preliminary conversation stage. um, But, you know, hope to launch something kind of in the next Mm -hmm. 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in An initial location in Texas and grow over time.
0: What do you want, Kevin? Along the journey, you have really followed your path, right? Whether it's exploring the investment banker role or in the VC world, looking at distressed founders or having your own business uh, throughout the journey. And now it sounds like you are in the, you know, exactly where you wanted to be in that VC and the startup, um, the circle and supporting founders of the world. Like, is this what you want or is it something else?
1: No, I mean, this is great. I think the current role that I do now um, is allowing me to be an entrepreneur again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so my role right now is two parts. So one is is still to invest in amazing companies. Um, so sitting on our investment committees, helping raise funds and and manage them um, and deploy that capital. Um, so that still kind of exercises that investor side of the brain. And I think on the operator side, it's it's finding kind of a product market fit for plug-and-play within Texas, mm-hmm. um, helping build and scale our operations here, hiring an initial team, um, and then developing a framework that we could potentially take throughout all of kind of the South and uh, mm-hmm. Southeast, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's it allows me to kind of get to that entrepreneurial itch, if yeah. you will, uh, that never went away, yeah. um, while also being able to invest and work with such amazing people.
0: Yeah. How beautiful. And yes, and yes, cannot wait to see how everything all gonna shape out in the next, you know, twelve to eighteen months. And we cannot wait to see the location. Uh with that, Kevin, I'm curious what impact you wanna leave on this planet? If all that's over, say a hundred years from now, you I mean we're all gonna be long gone. What is the impact you wanna leave on this planet?
1: Yeah, it's that's a good question. Um, I think if I can be known um, as a facilitator of opportunity, mm. um, that if you know if the people that I've been able to touch throughout life uh, can point to a specific moment where maybe it was an introduction I made, or mm. um, hopefully a kind thing I said, or some feedback I gave, uh, and that allowed them to have some shift in their lives, the same way you know that restaurant manager I was had a just shift thinking in my life. about
0: that it's yeah. so beautiful it come full circles.
1: Um, that I think is a fulfilling life. Um, yeah. Allow you know, being even having a small aspect in someone else's life that mm-hmm. led to the growth that they are, um, that is really important to me to kind of develop and become kind of a, a wholly rounded individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can do that in a meaningful way uh, and lead to some opportunity for other people, mm-hmm. um, that's a valuable life for me.
0: So beautiful. I love that. Everything's all come together where now you are paying it forwards and share those kindness that you're receiving early on to others who are maybe need that light at this moment of their career. Hopefully. I'm curious, Kevin, what do you think is your superpower?
1: My superpower? Um, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. Um, I think for me, uh, personally speaking, uh, getting an executive coach is very helpful in kind of identifying some of these things. Um, my superpower um I think is is just being incredibly organized uh, <laughs> 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 like, no, I expect that <laughs> yeah um, like if I try to think of things that I'm really good at, I think there are people that are um, have really great technical expertise and um, have an amazing way to be kind of uh, you know operationally amazing. Um, but what often I I see as an opportunity um, is, is kind of the basics is following up with people um, mm-hmm. having detailed ways to reach out and connect and um, make people feel empowered in their roles um, so simple things that i do for example um, i have an excel sheet of people i've met throughout life um, and if they've shared uh, an interesting fact um, i try to mark it down when i get home or whatever it may be um, and then if i know i'm going to go see them again um, i just revisit that excel sheet um, and you that's yours I'm sorry? Yeah. Are you being
0: serious? That's yeah. insane. Wait, <laughs> yeah. Just just generally speaking, how big is this? Like, is it ten thousand people? Is it two thousand no, people? No, it's
1: like a couple hundred. It's it's mainly um professional life. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. okay, okay, okay. Yeah, like, yeah, Wow, it's a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Um and I just try to note it down and then um, you know, uh sometimes try to remember it, but if you don't, you can always refer back. And then if you're gonna go see them again, people really appreciate. Mm. Um if you brought up something that Last time they talked to you, Mm -hmm. um, you bring that up. Um, People remembering people's birthdays, remembering to follow up on an email after a phone call um, with some action items, having an Asana dashboard. These are things that I think that the average person can do, but maybe not doesn't do or, you know, and that's where I found my success. Mm -hmm. Um, Investing in some of the unicorns that we've been able to back um, was largely based on the follow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, was based on yeah. kind of being the right person at the right time, um with those companies, outside of all the intuition and thesis and stuff that we do.
0: You're so intentional, Kevin. It's not just a, a, a task. I feel like you treat it like every human being is there a moment that you truly see them as who they are and Like you said, having a spreadsheet is not the hardest thing, but having that discipline to commit to to that, you know what, I'm going to remember you, I'm going to see you, and I would love to support you however I can. With that mindset and that sincerity, I believe that's one of the reasons that why you are one of the VC leaders that people say, wow, like it will be honored honor if we can support, you know, get to collaborate with Kevin. Or many other, among all other term shoes." they want to say yes to you.
1: I mean, maybe. I mean, I hope so. Um, I think... My role in venture capital and kind of what has led to um, where I am today has been quite a lot of uh, being a normal person.
0: What do you mean Uh, by that?
1: I think that... um, Who
0: is not a normal person, first and foremost?
1: So (laughs) let me clarify that. So I I think um, venture capital, let's say partners, et cetera, some of them are incredibly intimidating. Um, um, They're super accomplished people right of course Um, founders of amazing companies and so forth Um, and uh, it's sometimes hard to relate Mm -hmm. um, to uh, to them Um, so my strategy has always been to you know just present who I am uh, but not in kind of an ostentatious or um, non friendly manner
0: you're always uh, the most friendly person i met in the room. <laughs> you are so grounded and sincere. Whenever I, I meet you thank in you. events or today's conversation, either just a two seconds, hello, goodbye, or talking to you, you just have that sincerity that really come through.
1: Uh, thank you. I mean, I think I got it from my mom. Uh, <laughs> oh, she's the <a> <laughs> She, really she takes take care people. of people. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, and, and honestly, it didn't come without uh, learning, right? Like, I think when you get a role... Um, where you like you know you're a VC if you will, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's a certain arrogance that I definitely had mm-hmm. uh, early on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you quickly realize that you know that arrogance will get you nowhere. Um, that um, you know. That's a that huge
0: self-awareness because not many people can see
1: that. Well, trial by error, right? <laughs> I wish I could say I'm this all kind of wise guru, but I'm not. Uh, it's, it's just learning through, learning through your own mistakes, yeah. learning through the, the relationships that you wish you could have handled better or the mm-hmm. conversations you could have handled better. Um, and, and luckily, the people in your life that are willing to give you direct and frank feedback— and say, hey, I really didn't like how you approached that, mm. um, or you know, you could have done that that aspect differently, um, and then noting it somewhere. Um, and then in that spreadsheet, that. and for me, it's different it's sheets and notes and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, but you know, whatever system works for other people.
0: I may find out because I'm truly admire that discipline. Like, oh my god, think about a spreadsheet. I understand the concept, but the fact that you write down every single thing in I cannot do it. Though I am a huge note taker. I, I have like multiple journals. I told different notes, meetings, but I never look at them. I just never look at them afterwards. <laughs> I just take it. It's but,
1: it's things that like, you know, you walk, okay, let's say you mentioned, hey, yeah. uh, oh, I'm really excited. Uh, like if I said, how are you doing? Yeah. And you said, oh, I'm in a good mood. My, my birthday is tomorrow. Um, So then <laughs> what I would just go and go home is write down that your birthday is tomorrow. Um, and then next year or tomorrow, I would obviously shoot you an email or a text or whatever, yeah, maybe yeah. saying happy birthday. But then a year from now, I would also do that, and then a year from that, um, and things like that. Always, yeah. Generally. Even people
0: you have not talked to for two, three, five years professionally, I
1: mean, it's that would be kind of crazy of of, of emailing and texting everyone. Um, it's more so like if you know uh, if there's a conversation to be had. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just do do, do lose connections to people. I'm not saying I can maintain thousands yeah. of relationships, um, but there's no harm in noting yeah. down and then choosing later um, if you want to stay in touch or if there's a reason to stay in touch.
0: I love that. I think oftentimes cool things are simple, but not always easy. And I think the way how you show up, how you sincerely want to connect with one another, it sounds... Simple, <laughs> but it's definitely not easy. And I think, therefore, that's you know one of the reasons that you are such a leader at what you do, because I think you are the people leader. Just like your mom you know, serving the patient of the world, you are serving the community of the world uh, who are founders, who are uh, innovators, who are uh, VCs of the world. They all want to come to you when the question or collaboration and such. And the fact that you can show up so powerfully, confidently, but so... Like you said, being a person so grounded and so sincerity and that's why people felt connected to you. They felt they've been seen. They can be truth to you.
1: Thank you. Still learning. We'll see.
0: I mean we all are learning progress, right? Right. And and with that, Kevin, I'm curious, you know, for our founders of the world listening to this episode and for he or she, you know, maybe understand of VC world, but maybe not as much as you would what would what would you tell our founders a few things that most people don't know about VC world that will be helpful for them to understand. Oh, sure. Because a lot of them have this like, huge, like, oh, my God, a VC, the God of the world, right? They have, yeah. like, a big box. right? <laughs> how, how do you, what do you want to share with them?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there was a lot of learnings that I've had mm-hmm. um, as a VC that I didn't have when I was a founder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one, I think, is um, I try to think of what motivates the other person that is talking to me. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, VCs, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious, are focused on returns. Um, but understanding who they ultimately report into, which is their limited partners, their investors, mm-hmm. is helpful. Um, understanding who their limited partners are and what those limited partners' underlying goals are and missions, etc. Um, of course, it's still financial return. But... There may be other aspects. Um, and then, you know, understanding kind of the life cycle of that fund. Um, so, for example, mm-hmm. um, if it's a freshman fund, meaning a brand new fund, um,
2: freshman. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Love uh, the name. <laughs> um, they are, you know, largely focused on deploying that capital, um, preferably um, at an accelerated rate.
0: Mm-hmm. Um and, define that.
1: Yeah. So, most funds have what's called a deployment period. Um, which is how long? Uh, usually anywhere from three to six years. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's make up a hypothetical. Let's say you have a $100 million fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's say you're reserving $20 million for follow-on capital. Mm-hmm. So you have about 80 or so million that you want to deploy in, let's say, four years. Um, and generally, what a lot of VC managers will do um, is try to deploy that $80 million um, at an accelerated rate in the first two years um, so that in the event of an early exit, mm-hmm. um, they can uh, they can take the proceeds of that capital and then reinvest within the deployment period. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may indicate to you of kind of uh, their level of eagerness, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what life cycle there are on the how fund. How would you know
0: that? Do you ask that?
1: Just ask how old the fund is, how long have you, you know, and that, and that usually kind of indicates when the deployment started. Okay. Uh, but if you
0: say, well, our VC fund established since two thousand 10.
1: Right. So then that's a different world because now they have likely um, overlapping funds they can invest out of. Oh. Uh, but not
0: necessary, right? Not and, necessarily. And that's okay to ask that question without being lewd, you know? No.
1: I think it's I think it's totally normal to understand mm-hmm. um, uh, where the fund sits.
0: Mm-hmm. You can just ask where does the fund
1: sit today? Yeah. Like how many funds do you have? Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. then, and then, you know, an established firm will have dozens mm-hmm. or have had dozens. Mm-hmm. Um and uh they're very willing to say, Oh, we'd invest in your company out of our newest fund, this, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe between these two or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Um so that's totally fine. I think understanding that motivator
0: that's huge, yeah. Um,
1: of where they're looking to deploy and what they like mm-hmm.
0: to. So what happened after the salary period? Because in that hypothetical example for the first two years, right, you want to accelerate the investment and then hopefully in that four years, the goal is Deploy the entire eighty mil. Once that happens, what's next for the fund?
1: Yeah. So for usually, what's happening in year three, um, maybe even in year two, is you're out raising your second fund. Mm. um, If you if you're just starting,
0: if that's the case, they don't have time to deploy the capital.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of you know you know how like um, maybe your listeners will know your VC has like thirty minutes and they got to go to the next one and stuff like that. So a lot of times, is what's happening is if you're a small fund. Um, you're both raising and deploying at the same time. Wow. The same way entrepreneurs are both burning, yeah. uh, cash while well, also raising. Yeah. Um, so in a lot of senses, there is you know, some common links mm-hmm. um, your your limited partners, let's say on fund two, when you're out raising fund two, are still likely investing on the thesis that you came in on fund one mm-hmm. um, and whatever you know logic you came in with that. Mm-hmm. But then on fund three, Um, now that it's been, you know, roughly, uh, let's say five or so years Mm -hmm. um, when you're talking to those helpies, now you have some metrics that you can point to on fund one. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're always thinking about, you know, how to optimize your dollar, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, on those initial funds um, while also raising capital, et cetera. Um, Wow. Being organized is helpful. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, that Incredible. is that is kind of and, you know, more established funds have different people that raise capital um, and different people that, let's say, um, that only source companies and so forth. But if you're working with a smaller fund, let's say an initial fund size of, of 10 or even 50 million, um, they likely are just, a, you know, a group of partners that are excited about investing in companies. Um, And therefore, we'll have to Mm do both at the same time.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow, that's interesting to learn that. So for our founders, you know, who are maybe in the process of raising maybe this year or next, what advice you will share with them?
1: Yeah, I think this is the year of unit economics. Mm. Um, We're seeing that across the board. Uh, Does
0: it matter what sector?
1: No, I don't think it necessarily matters which sector. I think we are seeing some kind of hype topics mm-hmm. um, where revenue doesn't matter and technology is, is more important. Um, the way that I kind of almost look at VC analysis is a bit of a pendulum. Mm.
2: Um,
1: that sometimes that pendulum swings in the form of uh, kind of a hype cycle and you need to invest in anything and anyone that's hitting a topic that you're interested in. And then it, it swings back entirely into kind of an overcorrection Uh, invest in like the greatest unit economics businesses and so Mm -hmm. forth. Where where are we Um, sitting in that? I think we lean towards the latter right now, um, where we are seeing a hesitancy, especially at the pre-seed and seed stage, Mm -hmm. um, where investors are are highly hesitant to invest in a pre-revenue, pre-product business. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So what what should we do if you are pre-revenue, pre-all that at this stage?
1: So I think it's it's one is is think scrappy, right? How can, how much can you develop before you need outside capital?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then kind of the question before that is is your business actually venture backable?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I define that for our business.
1: Right. So and, and this kind of goes back to the thinking of the lens of your investor. Your VC has a has pressure and a mandate and a kind of responsibility to return capital, let's say in an eight to ten year window. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that investor is evaluating each company is, will this produce a, let's say you know, at a pre-seed deal, of 100X return um, or more um, wow. for me. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> right. So, um, for you, it's, what do I, do I want, let's say my company that's worth 5 million today mm-hmm. um, to be worth 500 million? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do I see a path to that, logically, in seven to 10 years? Um, And if not, uh, then the the next question is, well, what type of VC do I need to kind of attract, Mm -hmm. right? Because perhaps I can build a business um, to the seed stage or to the Series A stage where I have you in economics, um, and now that that VC is looking at different exit multiples. Your valuation's higher, right, because you've built out progress and so forth, um, but the expectations are different. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second thing is, do you want governance? Do you Mm -hmm. want, you know, do you want a, uh, an investor to kind of be telling you and, you know, uh, critiquing your business, um, a lot of times it can be healthy. Um, and, you know, we, we we believe that the best founders are coachable and helpable. Um, but again, it may not be for your business. Um, so the last thing is that it's, you know, it's expensive. Uh, we learned this in, in finance that equity is always more expensive than debt. Um, and giving up let's say 20% of your company to an outside investor mm-hmm. obviously reduces your share. Mm-hmm. Um, so is VC relevant for you? Yeah. Um, and I think where this was most important was the sector I used to invest in quite heavily and was direct to consumer brands mm-hmm. um, where we saw kind of the rise and fall of that. Mm. Um, like let's say the Casper's of the world and Warby Parker and, and several others that would raise at SaaS like valuations Uh, but not be able to achieve those metrics Mm -hmm. in any kind of reasonable time period. Mm -hmm. So they would have like what we were referring to earlier, recaps and Mm -hmm. down rounds and all these other things um, that would materially affect their company. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something I would consider if Mm. I was an entrepreneur in today's climate Yeah, um, is should I get venture funding? And if so, um, how much can I do kind of on a scrappy Mm. limitation? Um, I think the... You need to have signs of product market fit in the in, this, in today's day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that any inclination, right? It could just be kind of a mature conversation. Could would love to have, see traction, uh, yeah. but I mean that might be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, having any kind of example of that is mm-hmm. super important now. Um, and then, and then, lastly, is you know there is still a huge focus on talent. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, if you are able, I think when we evaluate founders at, at such an early stage, it's, is that founder uh, able to kind of attract others that are of high caliber? Mm. Um, meaning, are they able to kind of um, communicate their vision in such a way that brings on really exciting people onto it? And maybe, maybe they have to leave some great paying jobs, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, to be part of that vision. Um, because that will be an indicator of likely how they're going to raise financing rounds, attract other great people to the company as they scale, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And you got to be the first salesperson at Mm -hmm. your company.
0: Yeah. I love that. Wow. Kevin, so much packed knowledge and insight that I feel a lot of founders are not, you know, going to learn that otherwise. So thank you for being so honest and transparent as a VC leader of the world. My last question, Kevin, is what does American dreams mean for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. so I, I, mean, I shared kind of some notes about um, my family, but uh, just to kind of give some more context. So both of my parents, um, my dad never graduated college. He did his associate's degree um, and then worked in, you know, like I said, a warehouse. Yeah. Um, uh, and he's kind of gone through the ranks there. Uh, my mom was able to find nursing as an early passion and go through that, uh, but then also moved to the US. And for them, um, you know, uh, the American dream was having disposable income. Yeah. Uh, the ability to, let's say, go out uh, to a restaurant, not even a nice restaurant, <laughs> just a restaurant once a month. Uh, yeah. oh. um, and I think the, the interesting thing that happens with um, kind of generations is the American dream kind of compounds um, that... Uh, your vision becomes slightly larger mm-hmm. uh, and kind of what you can achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been blessed with the great education system, with parents that um, are able to see kind of the value of their hard work, but also see the opportunity that lies by living here. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the the American dream is kind of, is accessing those opportunities that are built into the foundation of kind of the ecosystem here um, and capitalizing on them.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, while also hopefully giving back to your community and setting up the infrastructure for others Mm. to succeed.
0: Wow, so beautiful. See how everything all come together and seeing your parent generation, how they see about American dream. And today you able to take all the resources and you stand on the giant shoulder and allowed you to not only grow and learn, but today giving back to people maybe in the same journey of rising and so beautiful. So Kevin, I want to sincerely thank you for being here. Thank you for being so open and so authentic and share everything that, you know, not only your journey, but also your insight, your take about what made life so great. So truly, I am so honored. I am so inspired. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Anne. This is great.
0: Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in today. I hope you all enjoy this show as much as I do. And I cannot wait to see you all next week. Bye, guys.